Last night, as uh, my wife and I, we were visiting with some friends who are on the way to Michigan. They're, the husband, a good friend of mine, is going to be a professor at Andrews. He's a physics uh, teacher, and so he's joining the, de the science department there. And as we were driving back, we were kind of caught in a storm. And, I mean, it was raining pretty hard, and I, I was thinking, okay, you know, this is fantastic. I get to try out how my truck handles a storm. So I'm thinking, you know, it's not really that big of a deal. I've driven through storms. Just uh, at this last Oshkosh, when we were driving up, we were caught in a really, really bad storm just right outside of where it was located in Wisconsin. And we had, we had driven up. We'd spent most of the day driving. And so now when you're tired and you get caught in a storm, it's kind of like, okay, now hold on a second, right? I mean, how, how uneasy is it? There's always that thought that crosses your mind. Do I follow everyone else and put on my hazards? Uh, do, I, do I pull over? You know, it's, it's interesting that when you're caught in a storm, you tend to think, okay, how do I get out of this? It's just natural. What, what do I do so I can get out of this? And we realistically want to get out of this as fast as possible because nobody likes being in a storm. And I think nature does something cool that teaches us that storms are inevitable. I mean, every season has a storm. When I was a kid, uh, during spring, you'd have tornado season in Texas. And so when I was in middle school, I remember being in fourth period, my science class, and all of a sudden the sirens start to go off. And so we're ushered out of our classroom, down the stairs, into the, the first floor, and we're in a uh, kind of a, a hallway, and we're told to just go into our duck and cover protocol because there's a tornado that's in our area, and my teacher is listening on this hand crank radio. He was a naval pilot, and so he's fully prepared for anything that the world can throw at him. And so he's listening, and, he, and he's hearing them talk about where it's located, and it's located right next to where my school was. I was in middle school. And I'm thinking, okay, here's, here's a... I hate tornadoes. They, they terrify me. I'd rather deal with an earthquake. Uh, that's because I've never dealt with an earthquake, so I can say that. Okay? But I, tornadoes, they, they scare me. Just outright. They're scary. And so I, I remember I would always, anytime there was a storm, I would try to turn on the television. I had the antennas back in the day because we didn't pay for cable. So I would strategically place them to where I could catch the weather channel to try to figure out if the storm was in my area. But at school, I can't do that. So I'm listening to the hand crank radio thinking, okay, uh, could this be it for me? Could this be, this be it for us? When storms come, it causes you to kind of assess things. But I think it's interesting that every season has a storm, and what I think that teaches us is that no matter where we go, no matter what situation, no matter what season we find ourselves in in life, a storm is inevitable. We will have to face a storm. And storm often cause us to think about how to handle, how to get out of it. Right? How do, we, how do we move forward? So today, as we open up our Bibles, we're going to be looking at this thing called courage and how we can have courage in crisis because really a storm is a metaphor for a crisis. And so if this is your first time joining us, I'm glad you're here. If you're a longtime church member, we are so thankful that we can gather together on the Sabbath to, to worship God. And if you're tuning in online, hey, we're, we appreciate that you would wake up and, and get, get situated to be able to worship with us from a distance. But if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 27. Acts chapter 27. We're going to be looking at the Apostle Paul, a, a persecutor of Christians turned Christian missionary, 
and when he's caught in a storm. And we're going to look at this account because it shows us three things about how to have courage in crisis. And I think for many of us, we might be in a storm, whether that's in a relational storm where, you know, our marriage is kind of bumpy, whether that's an educational storm where we're kind of hesitant about school, we don't know what that's going to look like, whether that's a job storm, we don't know if our employer is going to be able to continue to make payroll, whether that's a health storm, which is always around the corner anytime you, you start to feel slightly below the weather or slightly above the weather or whatever the phrase is, you start to think, okay, could this be it? Many of us, we might be in a storm. And so, the Apostle Paul tells us how to have three ways on how we can have courage in crisis. See, in Acts chapter 27, picking up in verse 14, it says, But before very long, there rushed down from the land a violent wind called Eurekulo. I think this is good news. We're already into some good news. Now you might wonder, well, how could this be good news? This is a violent wind. But they have a name for it. See, this is not a random phenomenon. No, this is something that is seasonal. You know, when, when, when we sit down to read the Bible, we sometimes think of it as, because it's a religious book, we sometimes think that, oh, it should just paint everything, you know, in, in a good news manner, right? But we use ourselves as that rule of what is good news. The Bible is the most honest book in history. It accurately depicts that our world is a broken world. It accurately depicts that our hearts are not set in the right place naturally, and we need someone to help us learn how to live more optimally. And so it's an honest book. Just Sunday, I was sitting down to study the Bible. Well, not to, 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 to begin maybe studying the Bible with someone, and there were a lot of questions. And I shared with this individual how the Bible just is so beautiful because it's honest. In a day and age when so many things are, are just, you almost think, oh, it's just everything's fake news, or everything is, you know, um, uh, polarized, or it's, you know, persuasive, or they're coming at it from the left or from the right. The Bible is just honest. It's just outright honest. That's good news. In a world of dishonesty, we can find a place of honesty, and we begin our story. There was a strong, violent wind. The word for violent is actually uh, to, uh, sorry, I've got to learn how to pronounce this in Greek, uh, tufonikos, which is the word that we get for typhoon. So this is a hurricane. This is a typhoon. This is not just the wind where, you know, you're kind of walking out with like an umbrella, and it like almost takes the umbrella out of your hand. No, it would break the umbrella. Right? This is a typhoon. This is a strong storm called Eurequilo. It's a seasonal thing. Verse 15, And when the ship was caught in it and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and let ourselves be driven along, running under the shelter of a small island called Clauda. We were scarcely able to get the ship's boat under control. After they had hoisted it up, they used supporting cables and undergirding the ship, and fearing that they might run aground on the shallows of Sirtis, they let down the sea anchor in this way, let themselves be driven along. They put on the brakes. They're trying to, they're trying to take control of the situation. They're trying to, to get through this storm. But then the next day, as we were being violently storm-tossed, they began to jettison the cargo. They start to throw things over. Is this valuable? No, it doesn't matter. We, to we toss it, right? How often when we get caught in a storm, we start to try to trim some of our, maybe our habits to get through it sooner. So they start to throw things over. Verse 19, and on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. 
since neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small storm was assailing us, from then on all hope of our being saved was gradually abandoned. This is a terrible situation. It's told from a first-hand account. It's told from the author Luke, who wrote the book of Acts. He's with Paul. He was a missionary with Paul on many of his trips. So he's with Paul on this trip, and Paul is going to Italy. He's going to Rome because he, being a Pharisee, being a, a, a Jewish leader, was persecuting Christians. But then he became a Christian, and then the Pharisees started to persecute him. In fact, they tried to kill him several times. And so in one particular instance, when he didn't know if he was going to be delivered, he appeals to Caesar, which is under Roman law as a Roman citizen, because Paul, not only being a Jew, was also a Roman citizen, had the right to appeal to Caesar, to have his case come up to Caesar's. And so he appeals, because he thinks that's his only option. But God has also told him that I will have you testify in Rome. So he's been given this promise. But now he's in the middle of this storm. He has no say about how to get out of this. In fact, he's tried to say, hey, we should do this, we should do that. But they don't listen to him. Why? Because he's a prisoner. He has no rights. He's stuck in this situation. He didn't even get himself in this situation. He was led into this situation by another person's decision. Sometimes other people bring the storms into our lives. Sometimes it's not even us. Sometimes it's just the, the other people. Their decisions have a domino effect that brings a storm into our life. And the, the storm is so bad that Luke is telling us that all hope of being saved was gradually abandoned. I mean, this is a dark time. It's a dark time. But Paul, Paul knows something that helps him be different, that helps him be courageous in crisis. See, in verse 21, it says, When they had gone a long time without food, then Paul stood up in their midst and said, Men, you ought to have followed my advice and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this damage and loss. Anyone here have an older sibling? Or maybe a younger sibling? Right? Or that friend where they tell you, If you do this, it's going gonna, it's gonna to turn out bad for you. And then you do it and it turns out bad and they say, I told you so. I mean, who does Paul think he is? I told you guys. Man, you ought to have followed my advice. We shouldn't have set sail. But Paul is not doing this in like a younger sibling, like ha, 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 ha. No, no, no. See, he's trying to teach them something. He's trying to differentiate himself from maybe what other people offer as advice. Right? You ever have that backseat driver that, you know, maybe you're driving and they're next to you and they're telling you how to turn left and right or, oh, you're going to miss the turn or, you know, you need to brake sooner or whatever. And then you get in the car with them. And you're just like, why would I take advice from you? you ever, I mean, you know, everyone, some people have opinions, but you shouldn't listen to all of those opinions, right? Some people know how to lead. Some people think they know how to lead. So how do you differentiate, right? Well, Paul, he says, I told you guys that we, we shouldn't have done this. But he's differentiating himself as someone who knows what is happening, as someone who has the principles to have courage in crisis. See, he says in verse 22, Yet now I urge you to keep up your courage, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood before me, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. Therefore, keep up your courage, men, for I believe God that it will turn out exactly as I have been told. 
Paul tells us, tells us that the source of courage for him is in the faithfulness of God. It's the fact that God is a promise-keeping God, not a God that says, hey, I'll do this for you, and then you need him to come through, and he doesn't. The source of his courage is in the faithfulness of God. There's this quote, one of the very first books that I ever read um, as I was journeying becoming a Christian was from this man named A.W. Tozer. And in his book, The Pursuit of God, he says this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And so our view of God really dictates whether or not we're able to stand in crisis or whether or not we sit and, and don't know what to do. We panic, we, we, uh, we, we get scared, we give up, we, we just are hopeless. What we think about God, who we think he is, is the most important thing about us because we will live out that belief day in and day out. And storms are inevitable. So whatever we believe about God is what's going to dictate how we act in those storms. But courage is this kind of odd thing because we tend to think that courage, right, in, in America, we tend to think, okay, being courageous means not having any fear. We just won't be fearful. That's not courage because it's natural to be fearful. Those who say, I have no fear, I, I, I'm hesitant about that because I think fear is, a level of fear is a good thing. When you're fearful, it means that you want the good result. When you're not fearful, you just don't care about the consequences. And so courage is not the absence of fear. Joshua, in the beginning of the Bible, he was uh, the second in command as God brings Israel out of slavery. And Moses passes away, and now he's told to take the children of promise into the promised land. But God tells him, don't be fearful, be strong and courageous, right? But that doesn't mean that he's going to all of a sudden now not have fear. No, 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 no. It's saying don't let your fear overpower you. You'll be able to meet the challenge because I will be with you. The promise really, we quote the promise, be strong and courageous, but the promise really is I will never leave you nor forsake you because that's where his courage comes from is the fact that God is a promise-keeping God. One of my favorite authors in the Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis, says this, Courage is not simply one of the virtues, but the form of every virtue at the testing point, which means at the highest point of reality. Courage is summoning up everything that you believe and using it to meet your present-day circumstance. And for Paul, his belief, the source of his courage, is in the faithfulness of God. Is that God keeps his promises. And we have a gift of, we have a, a storehouse of promises. We have promises in every passage of scripture. We see imperfect people get used by God for, in powerful ways. We get to see imperfect people delivered by God in powerful ways. And so scripture really is this storehouse of promises that we can take and apply to our lives and cling to. But notice, God had to send an angel to Paul to affirm his faithfulness. Now, I have, I have said many prayers, some of which I have seen God answer, some of which I'm waiting for him to explain to me how he answered. But I have really never outright had this angelic experience where um, I'm just like, okay, this was an angel for sure. But I do have this one story. And it was when my mom was playing ice hockey. I was a young kid, and I would, I would go with her because, um, I, you know, I'm her, her child, and we didn't have, uh, you know, child care. So I'd go, and I'd be running around the hockey rink. 
In fact, one time I got stuck in an elevator with my sister, but that's another story. Worst person to get stuck in an elevator with. But I love you, Suzanne. Um, so we're there, and I, I'm really into spy movies. I was really into spy movies as a kid. I, I, James Bond. My dad would make, let me watch James Bond. He shouldn't have. It's, it's not a movie for the age that I was in. And I'd be pretending that I was a spy as I'm sneaking around this hockey rink. And, and I made up with my imagination that there was this, this safe that I had to unlock. And my safe was an electrical outlet. And so I had to find a key to unlock this safe. And I found a key. It was a paper clip. And as I'm about to start to unlock, in my mind, I'm James Bond, and I'm saving all of this money, right? I'm taking all this money back that this evil person took from, you know, good people. And I'm about to start, and all of a sudden this man comes around the corner and says, hey, you shouldn't do that. That's dangerous. And I was so embarrassed that I just, like, shot up, and I just ran around the corner. I ran into the locker room where my mom's bag was. You know, it's my safe space in the rink. And, and then I come back out, and now I have a real mission. Who is this guy? So I'm going to go and try and find him. I looked everywhere. Never saw him. And you might think, oh, he probably left. Well, I walked outside. I mean, it was like maybe a minute. There's no way he was able to get into his car and then leave. And so my belief, wholeheartedly, I'm firmly convicted on this, that that was an angel. I believe it, wholeheartedly. Where would he come from? I had never seen him before. This was in the middle of the hockey season. I knew everyone that was at the rink in those evenings because it was only two teams playing. So it was the workers and those on the ice and the refs. That was it. And then there's the kids running around causing mayhem. So who was this guy? And why did I never see him again? God sometimes has to affirm his promises through divine intervention. And in this case, Paul, even the Apostle Paul, one who was faithful to serving Christ, needed an angel to come by and remind him of God's faithfulness. Paul's source of courage is in the promise-keeping God. In Hebrews, it says this, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And so if there's a promise, you can bet on it that God will keep it. You can bet on it. It'll be the best bet that you'll ever make. But Paul continues on. See, in verse 27... There, it says, but when the 14th night came, as we were being driven about in the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors began to surmise that they were approaching some land. They took soundings and found it to be 20 fathoms, and a little further, and they took another sounding and found it to be another 15 fathoms. Fearing that we might run aground somewhere on the rocks, they cast four anchors from the stern and wished for daybreak. So they it starts to lighten up a little bit. They start to think, okay, they've been at this for 14 days, but hey, we think that we might be seeing some land, and so we don't know what land it is, but hey, let's, let's start feeling what the depth is. And so they, you know, they, they start to explore, and they, okay, okay, it's getting shallower. That means we're probably closer to land, but we don't know how to get out of this, and so we're going to try to apply every possible thing that we can think of so that we don't run aground or we don't sink this ship and we don't die. But then, in verse 30, but as the sailors... We're trying to escape the ship. 
And, or, but as the sailors were trying to escape from the ship and had let down the ship's boat into the sea on the pretense of intending to lay out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and to the soldiers, unless these men remain in the ship, you yourselves cannot be saved. Paul shows us that not only is the source of his courage in the promise-keeping of God, but that we are sustained in our storms through community. Many of you might know of a time when you didn't feel like you were going to be able to get through, but it was because of community. It was because of your friends, because of your family, because of your church, that you were able to get through that dark time. Paul knows community all too well. See, in Acts 27, just before they set off, he had convinced Julius to let him go and see some friends. It says, The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul with consideration and allowed him to go to his friends and receive what? care. Paul knows the power of community. He knows that we're not created to exist as individual silos because storms are inevitable. They will come. In every season of life, we will face a storm and it will be a community that helps us get through. We are strengthened by our communities. The Apostle Paul went through depression. He was a man like you and I, but he writes this in 2 Corinthians, But God who comforts the depressed comforted us by the coming of Titus. So it was community that helped him through depression. This is, this is the Apostle Paul. He wrote most of the New Testament. He is perhaps the, the greatest first century individual outside of Jesus, on the, grading him on the impact that he made in his community. I mean, he spoke probably six languages. He was the up-and-coming uh, Pharisee. He was the youngest member. I mean, he had it made. He could, have, he could have just ridden off into the sunset. He had it made. And then he becomes a Christian, and he dedicates his life to living on the road, may, earning whatever he can through the work of his hands to serve others, to proclaim the gospel. And in that, he's beaten. He's imprisoned. He's almost killed several times. He's shipwrecked more than once. I mean, this is a man who surrendered everything for Christ, but he wasn't the superhero. No, 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 no. He had bouts of depression. He went through low moments. He knew storms would come. And so he prioritized community. Because he knew that eventually, even though you might believe that God is a promise-keeping God, the longer that storm rages on, the more you'll start to doubt. The more you'll become depressed. The more you'll come up with these answers of, well, I believe that God has saved me, but he might not want to save my present situation. Or, you know, God, if it's your will. Sometimes we pray, if it's your will. And that's to lighten our uh, hit when God doesn't answer the prayer the way that we want it. And so we say, oh, Lord, but if it's your will. No, let's be bold. Let's, let's know the God that we're praying to and let's ask him for it. And if he doesn't give it to us, let's talk to him about it. Let's seek his will instead of just saying, Lord, if it's your will. Let's know what his will is. Let's pursue him. And Paul knows that he wouldn't be able to get through dark times without his community. But this thing about community is rather interesting, and we've been talking about it a lot at this church, because I think we need it now more than ever. I think what COVID has highlighted is that we actually weren't as connected to one another as we may have thought. We may have just been comfortably connected. But in Christ, we're supposed to be super connected. We're supposed to be more connected than with our connections outside of the church, because we have new brothers and new sisters in Christ. We have this thing. We proclaim a risen Savior. That doesn't make sense, but we do. We proclaim a risen Savior, and so we should know each other. We should prioritize each other because we're going to be praying for one another. 
We're going to be there spiritually for one another. I mean, we'll have your back in a fight, in a pinch, whatever it is, but we're also going to pray for you. We're also going to seek to, to help you get closer to Jesus as you seek us, seek, uh, seek to help me get closer to Jesus. Sometimes we idolize the community. Sometimes we, we start to think that community should be this way. And in this day and age, we think about that all the time because we see what other churches do. We see, well, that, but that church, that church does this, and it's awesome. They have the, this killer worship scene, and you know, they have this awesome children's program, or they have this awesome Sabbath school teacher, and then we start to idolize that community. We should look at other communities and say, okay, cool, what are they doing well, and could we bring that here? But sometimes we idolize the other community, wanting that community to be our community. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, someone that uh, has strongly influenced me, he says this, the person who loves their dream of community will destroy community. But the person who loves those around them will create community. See, when we get so fixated on having this perfect community, we're, we're imperfect people. So the minute that we strive for a perfect community, I can't be a part of it because I know that I'm imperfect. I would not belong to a perfect church because I'm going to come with all my imperfections. But praise the Lord. Jesus doesn't tell us to show up perfect. He says, show up. I mean, that's the good news. And so sometimes we get fixated on having this perfect community when in reality we should just be loving those that are in our community. But Paul, not, not only knowing the source of his courage and the strength of community, but he also shows us the underlying, probably most important way to have courage in crisis. And it's through sustenance. So verse 33 until the day was about to dawn, Paul was encouraging them all to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you have been constantly watching and going without eating, having taken nothing. Therefore, I encourage you to take some food, for this is for your preservation, for not a hair from the head of any of you will perish. Now that seems kind of self-explanatory, right? We're biological creatures. We have needs. If you go so long without food, you might get hangry. And so your stomach starts to grumble, and then you start to become kind of really short-tempered, impatient. You get hangry, right? It's natural. We start to crave uh, water because we get thirsty. We start to crave food if we're hungry. They've been at this for 14 days. They've been battling the storm for 14 days. But they've forgotten to eat. Because they're so focused on trying to get out of this problem that they're not focusing on their immediate needs, which is to replenish their energy to be able to confront the storm. So often the storm is so big in our lives that we don't even think about, how am I going to, to make it through if this continues to last? If this outlasts that uh, cliff bar that I ate for breakfast? What happens if I have to run after some dog to chase it down for my neighbor? And all I've had is a cliff bar. And then I run, and that's a you know, sprinting dog that runs forever, right? And I'm tired. I mean, how am I going to continue on if I don't have any more energy? And so we might read this and think, okay, well, you know, that's self-explanatory. They should eat. But they hadn't because they were so focused on trying to survive. And if you meet individuals who are constantly going through struggle after struggle after struggle, it makes sense that they sometimes forget to eat because they're overwhelmed at everything that they're facing. That's why when you ever get depressed, you can't eat. It's hard. It's hard to eat because you, you just can't focus. Your body almost like shuts down. Or you get anxious and you start to try to meet that need through eating, but you neglect community 
or you neglect safe practices to help get out of your anxiety, right? Whatever that storm may be that we face, chances are we start to neglect what truly is going to help us get through. And so Paul, on the 14th day, says, take some bread. He says, you need some sustenance so that you can continue on. And there was this weird thing that when I first came into the church, I thought this was the weirdest practice, perhaps, of any... I mean, it was like the one day of church that I would skip. I remember, I mean, I became a Christian. I went straight to Southern Adventist University. I was there. I had just been baptized. I showed up, and my, my first class was Hebrew. Hebrew 1 at 8 a.m. in the morning, because I'm a morning person. And, well, I say I'm a morning person. I still struggle to, you know, snooze after eight times. But I'll get there one day. So, you know, it's 8 a.m., and I have no idea what to expect but I'm very, I mean, I'm new. I don't know Christian lingo. I don't know the language. I don't know practices. I don't, I mean, I, I, I had heard of haystacks, but I hadn't really been aware of what haystacks were. I thought it was like a taco salad or, you know, I I'd, I'd had a haystack before and it had been called a haystack, but I mean, it wasn't part of the culture that I grew up in. And so there were some things that I had to become, you know, acclimated to. But I remember getting there, and there was this church experience where all of a sudden this, the sermon was shorter than other sermons. And I was like, okay, well, what's, this, this is interesting. Like, it's, wow, he's already done? Like, it was like 10 minutes. And some of y'all would be like, oh, man, that'd be the best of church. But um, all of a sudden he comes out, and he's like, hey, we're going to, you know, the, the deacons are going to come out, and we're going to dismiss you to go wash feet. And I'm thinking, okay, well, what, this is weird. What? what? I, I wasn't prefaced on this. Thankfully, I have socks. What happens if my socks get wet? Or what happens if my pants get wet? Do I go back in? I, I didn't want to go because that was kind of odd to me. And then he said this word, we're going to practice communion. And I thought, okay, well, what is it? What, communion? What's, what's communion? You know, or to just commune with one another? I mean, I know what that is, right? But no, it's this ordinance, right? Where uh, Christians, they come together in church, and they might have a wafer or some type of bread, but it's very small like absurdly small, so if you didn't eat breakfast, it's not going to hold you over until lunch. And then you have some grape juice, right? That's, that's communion. You also do some foot washing and, and et cetera. It was the weirdest practice to me. It didn't make any sense. I'd never, I, I hadn't been given a Bible study on communion, so I, I had no idea what to expect. And so I left because it was weird. I wasn't going to be a part of it. it was, I didn't know what it was, so I left. And then I'm in a class my sophomore year. And somebody starts to walk through the theology of communion and, and why we do it. And, and all of a sudden, my mind is blown. But then I start to realize that the way the early church did communion and the way that we tend to do communion didn't, didn't align with what they did. I mean, for them, it was a feast. I mean, they broke bread. They hung out. I mean, it was food. It, and it often went long. Like, people were not trying to skip it. People were not trying to leave it. No, it was what gave energy. Well, why? Why, why would that ordinance, that religious ordinance, be the energizer behind a church. In fact, there's this Mennonite uh, professor who uh, has passed away now. His name's Alan Kreider, and he talks about the energizing kind of sustenance of the early church, and he says it's communion. It was their communion practice. The fact that they would get together and share a meal with one another, relational component, and then they would talk about why they were there which was because of Christ, because of Christ's sacrifice for them. This is what gave them energy to meet every obstacle. 
This is what gave them energy to, to walk out and to witness to their neighbor when they could alert the authorities. The authorities could come and grab them and then take them to the gladiator coliseum and have them torn to shreds by lions. Communion is what gave them energy to, to go and to witness again. It was communion that gave them the energy to sing as they were being burned at the stake. It was not a sermon that they were recalling. It was not the, the perfect worship service of showing up and, and there being this killer worship scene. It was communion with their community that was rooted in a promise-keeping God. It's what energized them. And so I remember thinking, well, that was the weirdest thing that I've ever, I'm so thankful I skipped it because it was just so odd. And then I got into class and I started to realize, wow, okay, this is the meaning behind communion. It's to keep afresh in our minds what Christ has done. One of my favorite authors, she writes this, this ordinance, talking about communion, is to be celebrated. It is the means by which his great work for us is to be kept fresh in our minds. And so notice what Paul does in uh, verse 34. Therefore, I encourage you to take some food, for this is for your preservation. For not a hair from the head of any of you will perish. Having said this, he took the bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of all. And he broke it and began to eat. He gives them bread, and then he partakes of communion personally. He gives thanks to God and breaks the bread in the presence of everyone. So he, they're not participating in communion. He just gives them food, but he's participating in communion. And notice what, what happens. All of them were encouraged. All of them were encouraged. They're in the middle of a storm. They're still in the thick of it. It hasn't subsided. They're about to run aground on the, on the shore. They're about to crash. But not one of them is going to die because of the promise-keeping God. And so Paul has shown us that the source of our courage is in the faithfulness of God. The strength of our courage is in our community being there for us. And the sustenance of our courage is God himself. The fact that he kept the greatest promise that he could ever make, which is very simple. I love you, and I will do whatever it takes. In fact, I'll stand in your place so that you can have, life. You can have everlasting life. That's powerful. Let us pray. Lord, we, we look at your word and, and we think, wow, what would we have done if we were on that ship, if we were uh, caught in that storm? But Lord, for many of us, we're caught in storms all the time. Whether that's the uncertainty about school, about college, about what our university will be like, whether that's the uncertainty of stepping into high school for the first time, whether that's the uncertainty of our job or, or our health. But Lord, you have told us to not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself, but that to just seek you day after day and to ask you to, to give us our bread each and every day. To, to, to give us our water, to give us our protection. And so, Lord, we thank you for Paul, who in the midst of a storm shows us that we can be courageous because you are a promise-keeping God. Lord, we thank you for this community where we can come and we can gather, even if that's online, because ultimately this is a community that, that is devoted to caring about one another. Lord, we're, we, were go we are going to do whatever we can to live up to the call of what a church is, which is to exist 
for others, to exist for those who aren't even here yet, to sacrifice for the betterment of others. And so, Lord, we thank you for this community. And, Lord, ultimately, we know that our community and our courage would not be there had it not been for your wonderful display of promise-keeping in the person of Jesus. Lord, that's why we come to church, is because of you. It's not for any other reason other than you. And so we thank you for being faithful to us. Lord, show us how we can be faithful to you each and every day, especially in storms. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.